welcome to another episode of Source of Uncertainty. I'm Kyle. I'm Robert. And yeah, thanks for joining us again. It's been a lot of fun. Lots of fun. Yeah, we had a, a great episode last month with uh, Suzanne, and uh, we had yeah, a lot of people, a lot of new listeners. Uh, she put that out on, on her Instagram as, as well, so that was fun. And um, But yeah, looking, uh, looking forward to the future as we have a, a great episode for you today. Isn't it crazy, Kyle, how, I mean, it feels like we just finished the interview with Suzanne last weekend, but that was <laughs> over like a month and a half ago now. Yeah. And now, and now we're, we're always like, okay, well, the September show is coming up. And yeah. <laughs> it's like, like oh no, my God. No, no problem. At all. We'll, we'll get around to that. And then it, yeah. it definitely sneaks up on you, um, which, you know, we decided to do this monthly. So we'd have enough time for life and, <laughs> and other things. And then. Hey, guess what? It takes up a lot of life anyways. Um, but yeah, thanks everyone for uh, who keeps on coming back and listening. So yeah, what have we been up to since then? I I, I think I mentioned it last time, but I, I did play the Modular on the Spot Lucio event. Um, and that was kind of a on the rails quad. It was a really cool event because there's light art going all over through Seattle's Volunteer Park in Capitol Hill. Uh, so you just kind of wander through the dark and come upon just wild installations. And then the installation that we had up had three panels that had that was putting visuals on them, and those were synced up to the uh, quad patch that was going on with the four speakers. And then there were, I think, eight to ten of us that were all plugged in and and going through our sets. Um, unfortunately, the next to last person that went to, that was playing, because uh, we were running everything off generators, the generators ran out. And so the last guy didn't get to, to play at all. It was kind of heartbreaking. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. The, and it was great, too. One thing I really liked about uh, this particular sh- um, modular on the spot, it was ambient music, you know, kind of went with the Lucio, kind of that Lucio theme, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, the ask was to be, yeah, no kind of harsh noise sets or anything like that, like kind of chill or, yeah, nothing too aggressive um, was was asked of us. And I think everybody was pretty spot. I probably pushed it maybe the most <laughs> during I, some of I it. I think so. I One thing I really like about this particular modular in the spot was because of Lucio and because we're in Volunteer Park and all of that, there were lots of people that would never have otherwise gone and listened listened to modular electronic music and just seeing the looks on people's faces and then the people who don't like it, who had their ears covered and (laughs) that was really, that was really fun. But, um, yeah, yeah. I saw my, my, uh, the CEO of my, of the company I work for walking by and I was like, hey, you made it to the Nerd Fest. And he's like, we have a different idea of what nerdy means. I, like, I, cannot, I cannot reach this this coolness. So, uh, yeah, it's all in the eye of the beholder. But, yeah, that's what's nice about doing these Maja on the Spot events. Because you're outside and you have the passerbyers that, that come upon it and uh, get to you know blow their minds for a few minutes as they then keep on walking. And you were using your ESOL, your new 259R, your other, um, your 281 that you already had, right? And the um, the featured modules for this episode, right? Yeah. Um, I 
I got uh, my uh, my buddy Bill Lines that built my Marf um, helped me put together a 259R clone, the um, complex waveform generator. I think is the full name. Um, the big oscillator, and uh, so yeah, I've now have another couple of voices to work with as I've just been working with the easel for a long time. So, um, so yeah, it was really fun to, to get that in the mix and, um, and yeah, looking forward to, to using that a lot more. I love um, the 259R, the, uh, the switches it's they're they're, yeah. they're stiff you know and then you switch it's like a really hard clack like something like you're turning on the reserve power at a nuclear at a nuclear plant you know it's like clack mm-hmm. when you switch over that <laughs> you want that modulation Engage. oscillator yes clack because you slide that Ooh. over yeah it's very satisfying I, I like switches and buttons and things and i don't know i mean you know it's very similar to the oscillator and the easel you know it's got a, a few differences but um, I don't know, something about the knobs, like in really, I, so far I've tend to use the modulation oscillator, not necessarily for pitch, but really to modulate the, the, uh, principal oscillator. So I feel like I have my hand on that big dial a lot yeah. and I'm kind of, you know, switching around all over to, to get some crazy sounds out of it. Um, yeah, super psyched about that. Um, uh, now I just need a, another VCA. And, yeah, well, but, you know, you can never have too many VCAs, right? That's what I keep on saying. You should get a and, 227. And those, those people are right. <laughs> they, um, you should get like four module-module panels with the one the one height <laughs> VCAs. Just fill it with that. That's right. <laughs> um, I'll have to get that from you, right? <laughs> I sold mine. Um, okay, what else do we got? Um, well, I, I got some new stuff. Um, oh yeah, that's right. So in the last episode, I had just gotten like a 252e polyphonic rhythm generator and the 272e polyphonic tuner and some other stuff. And I've been playing with all of that and it's really fun. I can't wait for a future up about the 252. But the, um, the biggest news for me is in the world of control voltage processing. So I traded my 256e quad control voltage processor, which is four individual individual CV processors that have this cool little window and you turn some knobs and the dots move. I traded that for a 257E control voltage processor, which has two of those little windows with the dots in it. And I believe six sets of SLU generator and SLU limiting. So um, that, I got that right before I left for vacation. And so I just started playing with that really excited. Well, I needed all that other control voltage processing, the 256. So I bought a 254E control voltage processor, quad control voltage processor from Doug Clotter of Studio H. And it's all analog and it's got, you know, knobs and things. It's really fun. But the the cool thing about that, and, and I've, I've told Kyle about this probably like 60 times already, but I saw a post from Doug about how he, to never patch the, um, the 281E function generator directly into the 292e everybody uses the shorting bars it's sort of a standard instead put the yeah that that sounds like blasphemy yeah i know it's like what why but what do you do with the shorting bars so he said put the control voltage processor between the 281e function generator and the 292e and you know 
always patch your envelopes. I'm, I'm putting some words in his mouth. This is what I took from it, but always patch your envelopes to the control voltage processor so that you can shape them. And so that's what I've been doing. And it, he's, you know, there's a lot of truth there because as I'm creating en- envelopes, I don't just default to the output mm-hmm. of the 281 directly into the 282. I do stuff with it. Sometimes I leave it alone. You know, I just pass it through. But I yeah. find myself shaping it with the 254 control voltage processor. And, you know, and there's sort of these two different things. You're shaping the envelope itself in the 281, and then you're shaping its output or the output of that function in the 254E. So other than cable mess, because I don't have, I can't do shorting bars. Um, it's been, mm-hmm. it's been fantastic. I had to buy more of those little five inch Pomona's, you know, to, uh, to keep those. To, oh, yeah. So the funny thing is, um, Doug, if you're listening, I have the 254E always patched into the 292E. So I, somehow I've kind of violated the rule of not always having something going into the 292. But, um, and you know, it's like, how long can I talk about control voltage processing? Well, that is, you know, the backbone of modular, whether it's Eurorack, 5U, FrackRack, Buchla, you know, control voltages are, are where it's at. Or, you know, as Todd says, you're only as expressive as your control voltages. So in my very large 24 space system, that kind of that level of CV processing was essential. And um, I've, I've been having a ton of fun with that. And we'll, as we go into featured modules and more patches and things, we'll figure out some cool ways to use the 254 and the 257 with the MARF. So when we start getting into, into future stuff where we're doing more sequencing and talking about SLU, I think that would be a really cool way to kind of show off what those modules can do. Yeah, I guess enough about our stuff. Yeah. Uh, on to other <laughs> Bukla-ish news. Um, Bandcamp's uh, website, and part of it is Bandcamp Daily, where they have little uh, write-ups or news sections. They did a, back on August 15th, um, and eight artists making music built on Buchla synthesizers. So yeah, it was a cool uh, rundown of I don't know, probably about eight to ten different artists that are using Buchla, like Suzanne uh, Chiani, uh, Caitlin Aurelia Smith, Todd Barton, um, and a bunch of other people that I had never heard of. Um, and so yeah, go check that out. You can I think if you just Google. Bandcamp and Buchla, you should be able to find it pretty easily. I saw it on Reverb of all places. I think it was linked from a Reverb daily. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So it's it was all around. Right on. Yeah, there's stuff. yeah, um, and it's been fun kind of making my way through those. Um, I'm sure we'll we'll probably try and reach out to some of these people to do um, maybe a, a featured artist section on them. But uh, there was a Callie Malone on there Man, that love it. kind of wor- works with drones and um, and mixing. Uh, Buchla, I think they're using the the 200 system um, in Stockholm. I think that was. Uh, yeah, that sounds system. right. The one at EMS in Stockholm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then blending it with uh, other acoustic instruments, yeah. like lots of horns, and stuff. Uh, bassoon, alto sax, some really cool stuff. Uh, yeah, I loved it. And then on the module front, there's like a couple new little cool MIDI devices. Yeah, so. Um, I'm always talking about Doug at Studio H, so we'll start with him. He's got a this kind of prototype thing that he shared on Instagram that is, um, it's essentially like a power edge connector with a little system on a chip 
I don't know if it's Arduino or Teensy, but it's really small and it has a Wi-Fi radio um, or Wi-Fi receiver in it and it has a URL or an IP address. So what you can do with that is get access to the preset bus in your Bootless 200E system with this little edge card connector and control and download presets and control presets and stuff over Wi-Fi through a URL and it has a REST API. So if you're a programmer type, you'll know what all that means. And it's just a, what's really cool. Nothing you just said made sense. Yeah. Me, well, so. it's really, <laughs> it's really, really neat because you don't necessarily have to have say a 225E MIDI decoder preset manager because this device gives you access to the preset bus. And um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so also speaking of MIDI, Kane Association just showed this new device on um, on Instagram also that is a edge card connector, power connector that stacks on. So it stacks onto your, your power bus and then you can put another card on top of that so it doesn't use one up. And then a little breakout cable to a couple of MIDI ports. So this mounts to the back of your Buchla boat and it's called Wormhole. Mm-hmm which I think is kind of neat. And it uh, gives access to all of the 200E processes on the I2C bus. So you can use it for MIDI, um, open sound control, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth. And so they they designed it for to pair with an upcoming module they have called the 283E. 283E. That's going to take some practice, Kyle. <laughs> 283E. Um, and so there's like this com- this really cool uh, MIDI open sound control to CV pulse interface for the upcoming module. And so this thing, this um, wormhole is designed for that. But you can, of course, use it with your computer. So just imagine being able to use something like Max MSP or Reactor or Renoise on your uh, computer and control your Buchla with that. So that would be when, you know, without having to use external cards and, you know, some kind of, or expert sleepers or something. So that is, um, that's really, really exciting because bringing that element of sound design and, you know, the technology that we have in our computers to interface with the Buchla through something other than just pure MIDI is, is just going to be fantastic. Yeah. Everybody's trying to hack into that power board. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and there's more than just power. Power, I2C, um, MIDI, preset management, and some other stuff. So we'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. Uh, We just started Patreon last month. We mentioned it on the last show, and we're already up to 11 supporters, and that's really awesome. It's going to help out a lot. Um, One of the main things, uh, there's different tiers that you can... uh, a supporter of and one of the main extras is doing a video version of the featured module section that we do every episode uh but we have a bunch of other stuff that we've been putting out throughout the month yeah kyle and i both individually did a featured module patch with the marf 248 i did one with for dark ambient music and kyle did this really cool self-transposing sequencer patch that i just listened to over and over again not to embarrass you <laughs> and um, for this and, and for this month you know we did the same thing with the featured module and we also do some some cool stuff because kyle and i usually talk for like an hour before we start recording the show and you can get access to that and hear all of our banter yeah and um and another thing that we do is uh, a week before uh, the episode comes out, uh, we will let you know who the next guest is. So 
Uh, about a week ago, uh, people learned that the guest of this episode is Wes Milholland from 1979. And Grayscale. And Grayscale. That's right. And VCV Rock. So, yeah, Wes is a multi-talented guy. It was awesome to talk to Wes. Uh, he's been one of the people that we've been, uh, one of the first people that we wanted to to talk to. And so far with the modules that he has out, um, which is the uh, dual algorithmic oscillator, the digital resonator, and the... Stereo microsound processor. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, braids, rings, and clouds from uh, mutable instruments or adaptations of those and, and expansions in a way on some of them. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting where uh, in the Eurorack world, so much of what Don has done with his modules have influenced countless modules that, are, uh, that have been created in Eurorack. So it's kind of interesting to see it turn back the other way where we've got uh, a designer in Eurorack that um, is, is bringing modules from Eurorack into the Buchla format. Yeah, and I, I think that overall this is a good thing for the format and for the, for, for uh, I shouldn't say for the format, but for the Buchla community, uh, you know, having mm-hmm. more choices and filling gaps with things like, for example, the um, Northern Light Modular 2TT, two time and triggers, which is based on Tom T or Temp Sutil for how people say, um, with, you know, a clock divider in Buchla, the, the only two that I know of that are, you know, that were produced in large enough numbers, which was the 225E MIDI decoder, which will do that for MIDI and the um, pendulum ratchet, which is unobtainium. So mm-hmm. something like 2TT or and then Ornament cr- and Crime, which is another module that um, Northern Light has released from the Buchla format. Th- those are good things to have when you want to use them. You know, they're, they're really good. And the cool thing that I'm seeing here with basing, um, creating Buchla modules based on mutable instruments and ornament crime and Tom is those module, the module code is open source. So the creators of those modules has, um, have open sourced the code for that, which means that other module makers can, including in Eurorack, can make their own versions of those things and customize it and and create their own user interface for it. Grayscale, you know, which is also West, did the same for clouds called Supercell, which is a large format clouds where he broke out the um, a lot of the functions that were hidden behind menus into their own CV inputs and knobs. And they did the same thing with the SMP. So that's all really cool stuff. And, you know, you see Trommel Machine from Northern Light based on grids. There are tons of other 1979 modules based on uh, mutable instruments modules that are, I think, in the planning stages. You can see them on modular grid. And I, th- I think this is good. You know, I only have so much space in my system, but <laughs> but I think that you know, there's some <laughs> really, really great modules out there that having them in the in the Buchla ecosystem is a good thing. I think just generally saying that I, I, I believe that to be the case. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, for people that are primarily Buchla users, I'm sure there's stuff, I mean, um, in the Eurorack world, since there's just so much innovation all the time that it's like, Oh, that would be cool to work with, but I have to get some other module that I can then scale everything over to, <laughs> to, yeah. um, Buchla voltage and back forth. And it's, um, it doesn't seem like it's always the easiest task. Um, but yeah, now that so many things are kind of being made for Buchla, 
um, that can be right in your case, which is kind of nice. And I think it can also work for, um, I know I hear a lot of Eurorack users that are interested in Buchla by just a, using a larger format, um, interested with working with banana cables. Um, but, you know, maybe are hesitant because it's uh, definitely a smaller set of modules to work with. And maybe they have favorites like braids or clouds that they would still like to use. And so it's maybe another reason to have them kind of branch out over into Buchla land. Yeah, I, um, Noisebug sells this little portable system that has a Kilpatrick carbon sequencer in it. And um, I think not be the carbon, but you know, the one, the Kilpatrick sequencer Oh yeah. has DAO, yeah. has a 281, 292 combo. And it. it's like a, a self-contained system mm-hmm. with a little bit of Buchla and a little bit of Eurorack kind of, you know, kind of combined. And, and it, that's really interesting. And I think that pe- people who want to break into Buchla, but don't want to jump into the, you know, the full kind of experience and, break out of what they're currently doing and sort of start over. There are these transition things that you can take advantage of. So if you love braids and you want to have a low pass, the Buchla low pass gate, well now you can, you know, you can do that in a native format. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say world's world's getting bigger. It's yeah, it's exciting. Um, so yeah, we're going to take a look at uh, the three current modules of 1979 um, during the featured module section, and then we'll talk to Wes about them. Uh, but before that, we're going to go over to our featured artist segment, where we've got Kevin Ricks in Lollikin's book one and two. Book One and Lollikin's Book Two are two albums by musician and composer Kevin Ricks. I have really enjoyed listening to these albums as I prepared this music spotlight, and there were several times where I just got lost in the music. I found myself drifting from listening critically to just letting my mind wander. I put this on while I was at work and I just let it go. There's a familiarity in the Buchla sound on these tracks that is interspersed with techniques and arrangements one would hear in film music. And that should be no surprise, as Kevin is a professional composer who writes music for film and TV trailers, several of which you would probably recognize. In the past few years, Kevin's become very passionate about working with Buchla instruments. The Lollikins albums were performed on a Buchla Skylab and a Buchla Music Easel. Some of the tracks use a verbose system as well. Many of the tracks were recorded in one take to a stereo track with zero overdubs, almost like he's performing them live. And a few tracks were overdubbed with other instruments, including an orchestra. Buchla sound is front and center on many of the tracks, while on others it weaves into different layers of sound, 
and that gestalt is what made me keep pressing play. Kevin's experience composing for film is front and center on these albums, particularly in the arrangements. On Shadow Sky, the boucle sequence seems to shift to another part of the stage while the strings move to the front, without overpowering the unabashedly electronic sound. It results in a sweeping score that, to my ears, is evocative of Hans Zimmer. I'm a huge fan of film music and the interpolation of electronic and traditional instruments, and Shadow Sky is a track that I listen to over and over. I love it. Because the tracks were performed in one take, there's a sort of DIY feel to a lot of them that I really like. Kevin has embraced the aesthetic that is inherent in performing live, particularly on the Buchla Music Easel. With the melody driven by the sequential voltage source, Kevin transposes the sequences with human timing tapping the relevant key on the 218 touch-activated voltage source when he's ready. strongly encourage you to give these two albums a good listen and see what journey they take you on. You can purchase Lollykin's Book 1 and Lollykin's Book 2 by Kevin Ricks, along with his other works, at robotrixie.bandcamp.com.
are going to take a look at the 1979 modules right now. Uh, so we've kind of put together a patch. Yeah, this was pretty fun. Yeah, I don't. Um, I haven't really worked on a multi. I mean, other than the Suzanne Chiani patch that we kind of did, that was we worked on that together. Um, yeah, we kind of just put different parts together. Yeah, this was uh, this was a little bit different than the previous two shows. Um, but it was, it was pretty cool, you know, going through each one and figuring out what, what we wanted to get out of it. So we're first going to start off with the digital resonator and the modules that I'm pairing up with that are the programmable wave complex waveform generator, the 259R clone and uh, multiple arbitrary function generator, uh, the MARF and uh, also an envelope from the uh, quad function generator model 281. So to start out with the digital resonator, I have the poly mode in um, the second section, uh, which I believe is a stereo mode. And, um, and then the type of resonance I have is the modal resonator. Um, so if I bring in, uh, so I have some pitch coming from the MARF uh, that's coming from a 16 step sequence. And so if we bring that up, I guess this is, this is what it sounds like without the pitch changing. So the pitch is going into uh, the complex or the principal oscillator side of the, um, of the 259. And the pitch is also going into the pitch input of the digital resonator. Um, and you'll hear that kind of that ping, which is coming from uh, from the uh, pitch input. Uh, I also have a um, the reference, or sorry, the uh, all pulses out uh, section of the MARF going into the uh, strum section. So yeah, I like that funky. Yeah, get that in there. Um, and I have the position uh, CV input. Um, I have a, a, a 281 envelope just kind of cycling pretty quickly. So if I bring that in. So, yeah, that's kind of the what we have going on with the digital resonator. Uh, so if we bring, bring those down, that's yeah. cool. Um, and then, so now we're going to transfer over to the uh, dual algorithmic oscillator, uh, by 1979. And, um, what's really cool about the, uh, uh the DAO is that it has built in, uh, VCAs and envelopes. So if you're working with a smaller system, um, kind of have a full voice within the oscillator by itself, as long as you have some triggers. So all it takes is a trigger input and you can trigger that envelope into its internal VCA. Um, so we're kind of dumbing it down, but I don't know, I, I call it dumbing it down by just using that. We're doing a kick um, for one of the oscillators and a snare for the other one. But um, I don't know. Sometimes it's funny with, with the, with these modules like yeah we can get kicks and snares from other places but it is also kind of nice to like 
have some good representation of it. Well, yeah. and, like, and we can patch it up really quickly. And these, these are T Roland TR eight Oh eight kicks and snares. So that, oh, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. You know, we were, Kyle and I were kind of joking earlier that a kick and a snare seem like a very basic thing to do with this, but it, they are two of the, um, very many, many different synthesis algorithms in this. So they're just as valid, of course, yeah. as all of the other ones. And, and that's actually why I bought this module too, is for the, the kick and snare. So I think that these are, are really, really cool. And I, and I'm, uh, it's interesting how quickly you can bring some great rhythm with such a simple approach to programming a drum machine. Yeah. So, um, I've first, uh, so coming from the MARF, I programmed some, uh, pulses. So I have, a um, output pulse one going to the kick input or the trigger input of the, uh, kick oscillator. And we have the decay set to, I think 15, and on the, the uh, on the internal on, yeah the internal the internal decay on the the AO sec, top section for the kick drum we have the the uh, decay set to 15 and the attack set to 1 and of course the VCA turned on and then uh and then i programmed the output pulses 2 to go to the snare trigger and to get that nice deep 808 kick we have the timbre turned up to, I'd say, almost fully clockwise. It would be maybe in the four o'clock position. And color is fully clockwise. And for the snare, we have color fully clockwise and timbre at about the two o'clock position. Yeah, so... Sounds good. Yeah, so then if we... Let's bring uh, up those other two to hear those sounds together. Yeah. Yeah. So we got those going, and then we, um, yeah, we decided to get weird. Very weird. Very fast. Uh, <laughs> with the uh, stereo microsound processor from 1979. Yeah. Well, let me tell you how we have this thing set up. So this is um this is a cool module. It's very big, so it made it easy to program as far as our fingers go. We have the position knob set to about nine o'clock and the CV attenuator at about two. We have the input turned up and the output turned up to the same almost fully clockwise. And then the green size is at about two o'clock. So we, on the, on the top section, we have, um, we're modulating, the, we're going to modulate the position from the beginning of it and move toward its end. And then we have uh, the grain rate set kind of low and the shape set around the, a little bit past the middle and the reverb is turned all the way down. So the okay. sound source for this is the duophonic pitch class generator, the 260E, which is a very strange module. And a mouthful. And a mouthful. And it's, <laughs> it's doing a shepherd tone, um, which we are gating with the 281E uh, quad function generator. And we're taking the pulse outputs from that section of the 281E into the quantized random voltages C section C and D of the source of uncertainty, the 266E. And then we're sending those out to modulate pitch, position, and reverb in different ways. And it's going through the um, balance modulator as well? Yes, thanks. I, I neglected to mention that. It's going into the balance modulator section in ring modulator mo mode and the um, frequency set to 
uh, one kilohertz using the internal reference source. So I'm going to bring that. So without, so that's what it sounds like. Sort of like a carnival of your horrible <laughs> dreams, right? We're, we're excited for uh, the second uh, It movie to come out, right? Yeah, this uh, something wicked this way comes <laughs> kind of thing going on there. So that, yeah, let me turn that up. So what we're doing with that is uh, we have we we want to get some kind of high pitched sound. So it's in the two sixty E's in the quantized uh, barber shop mode. So as it moves through. Each of the pitch class is going to give a, a, a quantized output instead of a continuous output. So that's kind of important for this because as we gate it with the 281E, we want to just kind of grab those notes. And so that sounds kind of at a high level. Okay. Now let's hear it with some modulation turned on. So what that is doing first is um, bringing random to the reverb amount. Yeah. And I, I neglected to mention an important thing, Kyle. Um, the 281E is being triggered by the, uh, this two, the 248 is going into the time, the time and triggers 2TT. And then we're getting a divide by four clock output going into the 281E. Yeah, so every time the, the snare hits happen... Um, those are being divided and that's what's setting off this. Uh. So next we'll bring up the modulation of position. So now the uh, 266E is modulating reverb and position. And now, are you ready to get really, <laughs> really crazy? We're going to modulate pitch. <laughs> so the carnival of your nightmares has <laughs> Okay. So we've got all the different patches together. Are you ready to hear them all come together at the same time? Let's do it. Okay, so first we'll bring up the digital resonator. I really love that. And now let's bring in the DAO with the kick and the snare. And then let's get freaky with the 260, the 260E and the SMP. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. I like the... Uh reverb coming in and out on on the SMP yeah Getting very dry and then wet I'm gonna try turning up the gain rate a little bit it's a little bit more crusty mm -hmm. yeah, once you mess with the shape all right. So you're turning that down, so now that's 
obviously at its minimum. Yeah, I think that goes from sine to triangle, but I can't remember. That was cool. Turn it all the way up. Whoa. I'm gonna hit freeze. That's cool. So if you, if you adjust the green size, what will that, uh, or the... Will the green size? Like I said, I, I've never messed with the clouds, so but this has been really, really fun to play with this. I mean, we could sit and tweak a lot of the different parameters of the clouds of the SMP, like the time buffer for the incoming audio recording and the grain size. And with the craziness of the pitch modulation of a very simple tone from the 260E, you're getting this really wild jungle sounds, right? I mean, that's... It's like the... almost sounds like the Predator sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need to get to the chopper, right? <laughs> it's kind of frightening. That's great. So I'm going to turn down the SMP. Let's change a little parameter. We'll change the color on the kick. So you can kind of, it takes out a little bit of the boom. Turn that back up. Yeah, that's, less, a, that's classic 808 kick right there. Yeah, less res, kind of takes down the resonant boom. Yeah, that's, it's like African Bombata 808 right there. And then on the snare, if we turn the timbre up, color has a lot of in. Yeah, I don't hear much of the color. Oh, the color, yeah. Kind of almost mutes it. Not a, not a mute. Uh, I forgot what they call it. When they, now we're both going to modulate. I'm going to turn color to noon. And these have frequency knobs also, so we can turn the frequency of the kick. Yeah, what you can hear yeah. there too is the uh, um, the quant, because we have the quantizer in that as well, right? Yeah, it's, the quantizer is turned on, right? So that's where you hear that stepping in there. That's cool. So on the on the digital resonator, Kyle, you're you're modulating position with the 248, but not modulating a lot of a lot of other things like um, frequency and brightness. So can I start turning modules? Yeah, let's or do Turning it. knobs and see what happens here. So I'm going to start by messing with the brightness knob. So it nearly takes yeah. it out if we turn it down. It distorts kind of or it's squelchy. And then the damping knob. Kind of if you work that with 
Yeah, those ones. So if I turn in the bright kind of, I they're related. I'll turn yeah. brightness all the way up and damping all the almost all the way down, and that's what we get. That's cool. And then position, just kind of sweeping the knob a bit. Whoa. So that's, I'm fighting your modulation, I realize, yeah. as I move the position there. So I'll play with structure now. Wow. Yeah, structure tends to have the most effect. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah, they all work in tandem. SMP back in. Yeah. I think this is the very first song I've made that has any kind of beat. <laughs> All right. So we've got Wes Milholland on the show. Wes, thanks for calling in. Yeah, thank you. No, no pressure at all to come after Todd Barton and Sudan Chani, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's on your shoulders. Glad you, so. I'm glad you said that, not us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to actually kind of start getting a little bit of your background, um, but kind of specifically with modular instruments and then what eventually led you to Bukla. Yeah, so long-term background is pretty much always been focused on design. Um, did a lot of software application design sort of stuff. Um, have studied architecture as well. Got into modular gear mostly as a musician and a user and because I'm a little bit of a deconstructivist who likes to take things apart and put them back together again sometimes. Um, just um, wanted to make everything about the modular, more modular. I remember right after I started doing the Grayscale uh, alt panels, there was a post on Trash Audio, which is like uh, Sir Chai, Richard Devine, uh, and Alessandro Cortini, and someone else, I think, um, saying that even even the front panels were modular now in the Eurorack. I thought that was really cool, actually. Because ultimately, it is, uh, yeah. it is just a collection of parts, right? And whether you're going to design a house or a Eurorack module or an automobile or whatever, you have to take it down to its smallest individual components in order to be able to put it back together again. So. So that's how it got started. Um, and of course, if you think being a, a Eurorack user or Bukla user is, is bad in terms of having a little bit of an addiction going on, just wait till you start designing your own models. Because <laughs> then it's not just like, everything's going to be great when I buy this one new module. And it's, everything's going to be great six months from now when I actually have a working prototype of this idea that I've been turning around in my head. So, uh, Yeah. Can, yeah, what is, I guess, the length of time? How quickly can you get that idea from out of your head into something in a working prototype? Well, it does take a while. Um, fortunately, the gap is closing substantially. Uh, you know, I first announced that I was going to do Google format models, I think about a year and a half ago, maybe, or two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago. <laughs> but... um. No, it's like, okay, what am I going to do? So one reason it's taken a while to get some of the things released is because I've had to do a whole lot of behind the scenes work to figure out like how to get stuff built. Right. 
Mm-hmm. It's not just like, okay, I, I can build 10 of these at home. Um, but that has a lot of problems associated with it. So I wanted to get it all factory built, you know, professionally built warranty and so on and not be, you know, soldering models together in the spare room when I feel like I have time to do it. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of stuff that's actually more or less ready to go at this point. So, um, and hopefully with new ideas that that time lag will will be decreased substantially due to all the kind of foundational work that I've done in terms of getting manufacturing lined up for things and getting the prototyping process really kind of uh, formalized and repetitive. Mm-hmm. How much mm-hmm. of the module building do you do versus the stuff that you outsource? I do almost none of it, which is by design. Yeah, that's good. Um, as I just mentioned, yeah, if I was, you know, ordering boards and putting parts on a board, you know, in my spare room, it would be like, I, I just really do not want to do that. A lot of people who get into modular stuff, either from a DIY builder perspective, uh, because they want to build their own instrument, or they start designing modules because they enjoy soldering and electronics. Like, that's not my approach at all. I'm really coming from a design background. So for me to have to sit there and troubleshoot like why something isn't working, is it because I started it wrong? Is it because I ordered the part with the wrong value? <laughs> that, is, that is not what I take pleasure in at all from uh, the design process. So, so yeah, but that's part of my, um, my systemization of, of getting production going is, is outsourcing all of that to people who are specifically building electronics all day, specifically modules um, for your rack and getting all that very uh, quantified. Is it, if there, if those people that are working on Eurorack stuff, um, do you know if it's different for them kind of transitioning into Buchla format stuff? Are there things that they have to kind of learn themselves to troubleshoot? It's been a bit of a transitional process. Yeah. And um, it's harder to build, you know, you have to, you have to hand solder all the wires you know, everything, the, the boards are more expensive, the panels are more expensive, the lead times are longer. And uh, part of that has been myself learning the process, like what does it take to build more than a handful of Google modules? Um, and for them as well, figuring it out. Like the, um, you know, the digital resonator and stereo microsound processor that just came out, I made the mistake of getting both of those into production at the same time. <laughs> mm. And, you know, people are like, when are you going to ship? I'm like, oh, you know, when they're done. Um, meanwhile, the guys at the factory are like, we're going to have to get like every single person building these modules, you know, because we're like, we way underestimated the time involved, you know, and soldering all these banana jacks and so on. I'd love to have some board mounted tiny jacks and banana jacks. And maybe, you know, if I get to a certain point, I will invest in getting those sort of custom components made. But for now, it's definitely a manual process. It takes a lot longer than running a circuit board through the pick and place machine, you know, and soldering the pots and jacks on and slapping the panel on. And then you have a Eurorack module. You know, it's a bit more of a, more of an artisanal process, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I guess you, you also put it, um, out the, uh, the supercell and, and that came together or that came out a bit earlier, correct? Yeah. Ironically, I started with the stereo microsound processor as my kind of first iteration of doing something with clouds, um, from mutable that, broke out all the different parameters and added the attenuation and so on that it needs. And because taking uh, a step back in terms of production of Buchla stuff took a lot of extra time, you know, I started looking at doing supercell as well. Um, 
because your rec stuff does go more quickly. So, sure. Kind of going back to my original question of like how you got to Bukla. So you started out playing on your rack systems first, I'm guessing. I started out, yeah, with a small Euro rack, um, expanded. This is probably 10 years ago now. I had a 5D MOTM system for a while. I had a small 200E for a while. I was not really into the 200E because of the preset aspect and uh, ended up not not keeping that, not keeping the 5 U. Went pretty deep into the Euro rack stuff and then just got more interested in the Bukla. I really liked the... Uh, you know, banana jacks, the larger panel size, you know, the fact that the aesthetic was not quite as arbitrary with between each manufacturer, you know. Mm-hmm. I even remember seeing a comment from Mutable talking about Eurorack and saying he wishes it was more like the Kilpatrick format, you know, with bigger panels, banana jacks and so on. I thought that was pretty interesting. Eurorack is kind of a compromise format where we all kind of say, okay, well, this is the best that you know, if we can all do together. <laughs> But uh, in terms of what you really want, you know, is what you really want. So after a certain point, I just really got interested in building uh, the 200R stuff you know, from Electric Music Store and doing the DIY, taking the DIY route. You know, building a little side bucle system was the plan. And so uh, that started out, you know, because they post all the panel templates with the drill holes, I was, but not the graphics. You know, I took the panel templates and started designing my own layouts with my own graphical system, you know. Oh. And kind of like doing the grayscale alternate panels, I, you know, I had to spend a lot of time looking at those Google layouts, if it, you know, really thinking about like, why is that there? And why is this here? And, you know, why is the spacing like this? So that was actually kind of a dipping my toes in the water, I guess you could say, in terms of designing Google stuff on my own, was really staring at all those 200 R models and kind of reskinning them all, recreating all the graphics. In the end, I ended up, ended up just using the existing panels. <laughs> <laughs> which is ironic. <laughs> but as I started to look at the system of the 200R, I um, saw some places where there were things I wanted to add to it, right? And it starts out with, the, you know, a little mixer, a little sequential switch, and then one thing leads to another. <laughs> and so that's kind of how we got to where we are today. So, gotcha. I remember, I think I, I got into, I was using Eurorack um, a while back, but I remember seeing the announcement for the dual algorithmic oscillator. And which was, I believe, the first module you released for Buchla under the, and I think you had it under the grayscale name, although it's not printed on the panel. And it was on the first few, yeah. It was, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. My, I have a later one that doesn't have that uh, printed on it. I think. Yeah, but, just like the first batch had grayscale on there. Yeah, I was I came to that party a little late, um, but I, <laughs> and I, I was, I knew about VCV Rack, which has a bunch of the mutable um, implementations in it. And so my assumption mind would say that you started with mutable instruments for Bukla because you already had experience with the, the way that they worked for VCV Rack. But is that assumption correct? Or did you, did you have some other, was there some other kind of design behind your, in your mind that you could take the mutable, um, those three, in this particular, these three mutable instruments, modules, uh, braids, rings, mm. and clouds, and bring them to Bukla in a special way, or was it really just a something in between, you know, of, of convenience? So for the VCV Rack question, um, all the development of that is handled by Andrew Belt, who invented the software. I work solely as on the design side of VCV Rack. 
So the mutable ports to VCB are not something that I was directly involved in other than providing the graphics library that most of the VCB models use. Um, I had used the mutable models mostly just through being a Eurorack user and using them for composition. And also kind of from doing the alternate panels for the mutable stuff as well, which similar to the Vukla 200R panels, forced me to spend a lot of time looking at the layouts and having to understand exactly what everything does so that I could label things correctly and you know, not make incorrect assumptions about functionality. You know, to do an alternate panel for something takes a bit of an investment in learning it if you don't own every single model uh, that exists. So, so that was part of it. And the first Bukla release really would have been the dual sequential switch that I, that which was the first one I designed in Bukla format, and that was going to be something that augmented the 245R or 246 as well. So you could kind of switch between the four channels and make it into a longer sequence. Um, but development on that one just kind of hit an iceberg. So it's still in the queue, but, you know, in the meantime, I started looking at some other things. I just remember when I, you know, thinking like about sound sources in the book and, you know, what else I could add to it. And, you know, how I really like braids and, you know, could I fit two of them in a Buchla panel? And so I did the layout and I was like, yeah, that actually works pretty well. What about, what about clouds? Can I do a clouds? <laughs> Can I do a rings? Um, so there wasn't really a grand scheme behind it um, so much as just seeing that the layouts did work. And I thought the juxtaposition of taking the modern microcontroller-driven hardware and dropping it into a kind of 1970s aesthetic was really interesting. Yeah, yeah because I, with, I can see that. With, yeah. With Grayscale, I think what Grayscale has always really been about is recontextualization and kind of uh, rearranging things in a way that might might break the history or might break a kind of linear way of looking at things, but lets you step back and say, you know, it's, it's all just parts and pieces. Uh, it goes back to that deconstructive sort of mindset. Is that why you separated the names between Grayscale and 1979? Well, part of the, partially I just realized that the word Grayscale wasn't really appropriate for the colorful um, blue. You know, I remember there's this, there's a documentary, not the Wave Shaper Media Subotnik documentary, but another documentary about Bukla that's been in progress, I think, for five or six years now. And they didn't have a trailer. And uh, I remember Alessandro Cortini, they're asking him, like, how did you get into Bukla? And he's like, I just, I saw it and it was just like, it was like candy. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that trailer. It's pretty yeah. funny. And I'm like, I know exactly what he means. Like, there's, you know, it's very colorful, it's very playful looking. So, yeah, I, I was like, I should really split this off because I think it's it's already in a way confusing for people that uh, that I do the alternate panels and uh, that I do Eurorack models as well. People will, will buy a Supercell, for example, and say, I had no idea you were making models. <laughs> it's like, you know, how can how is that possible? <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying as hard as I can to get people to find out about them, but. So I, I decided intentionally to split off, you know, and, and do something totally different. Um, and also because the Buchla modules are about a different sort of recon recontextualization than I think Grayscale is about. Um, it's where instead of kind of uh, making everything more neutral with Grayscale and making it more minimal, with the Buchla stuff, I really enjoy working within an existing design system that imposes lots of constraints um, so that you don't have to recreate everything from scratch over and over. You know, the reason we have kind of this... Uh, design apocalypse in Eurorack is because it's follows an evolutionary process where each each organism, which could be defined as each module or even each company, is trying to outcompete the others for resources, which is customers, right? 
So you have, you know, a hot pink a front panel with spray painted graffiti on it to try to stand out from the back. And I think when you do book with stuff, there's a there's a different sort of intention behind it, right? You're actually trying to fit into the aesthetic because you want it to be consistent. And uh, doing grayscale was always about consistency as well. So with Google stuff, the consistency is kind of already there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So that's how I that's why I chose a different name. It was comes from the same place in terms of recontextualization, but with very different outcomes. I think. When you were working on the designs for these these three modules, how did you kind of resolve the um, what you were trying to get done as a designer, and you know, your vision for the uh, the panel layout, but within the sort of uh, the structure of the design language of Buchla, things like outputs at top and inputs at the bottom. You know, on SMP, the inputs are right in the middle and they're not at the top of the module for audio. Mm-hmm. How, did you, how did you resolve that? Because I, I saw a thread about it and I know you have some opinions there, but so as a designer and also wanting to fit in the Buchla paradigm, you had to make some trade-offs, but how did you make that choice between what you wanted and what um, people would expect in the module format? Right. Yeah, there is kind of a norm in Buchla where you start at the bottom and um, come out from the top, right? And then either one is really kind of arbitrary. It really just depends like where you put the module in your system. Um, some people want to put the oscillators in the Buchla down front, I've noticed, which is interesting. But for me, when I whenever I drop on modular grid and start a Eurorack case layout, I, I always put the oscillators at the top left. <laughs> so, um, so in terms of the, the vertical flow, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's really a, a core precept of the, of the Buchla. And there's plenty of examples where that, that isn't the case. Uh, there's, there are, there are, there is kind of a norm there, but if then you look at like the 212, for example, and you just have kind of submodules within a module, and some of those will have like a left to right flow, for example, or the 281, for example, has a left to right flow where you start on the left with the CV input trigger, and you come out on the right side with the pulse output and the CV output of the function. So, um, yeah, in terms of the layouts, I think um, it was. I work inductively a lot, which kind of means you start with the with the outcome and then work backwards to come to the premise. So it was really a place of curiosity, like will these work at all? <laughs> Other than like what what trade-offs do I have to do I have to get to force them? Because there were a few like um I remember doing like a layout for like a streams, for example, from Mutable and the layout just simply doesn't work. Um so you know, maybe I'll go back to that one later. Um an iteration is really is really the key. Um, you know, it can take several days of, of iteration to get layouts that work well. Um, and when I feel like it's not going to work, more often than not, I just need to work on it more. You know, you just have to really keep pushing, and eventually you'll have some kind of breakthrough in terms of spacing or labeling or something that comes from a totally oblique place that makes you realize how to get things to snap into place. And that's always really satisfying when you you really think it wasn't going to work. <laughs> and then finally, it actually does work. For the specific name for 1979, what specifically made you choose that name for for the company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few reasons. I think one is being quite direct about the nostalgic aspect of working with you know this, this vintage Google sort of aesthetic. You know, not even using the 200E aesthetic, but going all the way back to the 1970s versions. Um, yeah. So that's like, you know, here we are, uh, being nostalgic and that's totally fine. I think there's an inherent nostalgia involved in mo- modular sense anyway. Uh, so I guess another aspect of it is um, 
the fact that with the 200 mostly being a product of the 1970s, and then if you think about the 1980s, you're thinking Yamaha DX7, right? Um, yeah. Where you're using FM, but it's in a very different way, and you're kind of making a, you know, uh, new wave 1980s pop music instead of, uh, you know, West Coast experimental noise. So, um, so that's that's part of the choice. Well, you know, it's the last last year of the 1970s as a decade, and history met sort of a bifurcation in terms of technology, music technology. Um, so it's asking, you know, what happens if we could go back to that time with the modern knowledge that we have um, about modular synthesis and music in general and kind of take a branch off of history, you know, kind of go back in time and, uh, you know, kind of come up with an alternate history, alternate future, I guess. Yeah, I like, um, I like that thought too. I was talking with somebody recently about um, kind of with more builders coming in um, and working on Buchla stuff. Um, I think a lot of them, well, I guess maybe it's split. Some some are really have an affinity for the kind of expanding on the 200E stuff and um, some are good with, like yourself, kind of working in that, I don't know, golden era or whatever yeah. um, of Buchla. And, um, but I'm liking to see these kind of like these little tweaks on, on classic designs. I was talking with somebody about um, how they wish the MARF with the um, time range switches, if they could be um, like musical divisions instead of just arbitrary kind of mathematical divisions. Don't, don't really play within things musically. And uh, I think more and more as people are getting into this, we'll have those kind of options where we've got this basis of what Don did and then we can kind of tweak it to modern sensibilities yeah exactly yeah it's interesting to listen to the your last podcast with suzanne Chani, for example and how she talks about feeling a certain loneliness and desperation in terms of trying to get people into what she was doing and then kind of regressing towards more traditional you know audience ideas of what music is i think the musical user today is much more sophisticated and so is uh so are the people that are actually using the equipment right we have a lot of technical assumptions that we make now and it's easy to forget that, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s, there was, you know, literally almost no precedent for what Don Buchel was mm -hmm. doing. He was literally inventing something that was completely new. Um, so we look at it now and say, oh, you, why isn't there a clock divider on there? Um, mm -hmm. And back then it was like, uh, a clock divider, huh? Hmm, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody said that. Yeah. So, the, you know, your average modular user now brings a very high level of sophistication into what they expect, so... So that's kind of the idea in general for me is, uh, yeah, like I said, kind of getting in the time machine and stepping back and saying like, what if, you know, you could inject a lot of what we know today back into that. And I think part of it too is the fact that, you know, without, I think, new input, then the, the 200 series just becomes kind of the museum piece, right? Um, and I think it kind of deserves to be a living system that, you know, exists in perpetuity um, by being, you know, refined and adapted and expanded upon rather than it kind of being the core, you know, 30, 20, 30 modules. And that was it, you know, and then it's just sitting in the library of Congress, like Martin Sabotnik sold Google 100. Right. Yeah. I, um, I thought it was pretty cool too, Wes, that in addition to styling it, like the Google 200 series with the similar uh, panel brushing and the nice big Rogans I and mean, the, the Rogan on the, the Rogan knob on the digital resonator, is like the that's the biggest Rogan knob I've ever seen in my life. 
That's pretty amazing. <laughs> but you also gave the modules Bukla names. And a quick funny story, a friend of mine, um, I told him we were going to have you on the show, and he said, ask him why he took the name Clouds and made it into something really complicated, stereo microsound processor. He's <laughs> like, well, in Bukla, you know, the names of the modules are what they do. So control and signal router, quad function generator, dynamics manager, or system interface. So that you've given these modules names like digital resonator, dual algorithmic oscillator, and stereo microsound processor that fit that, that Buchla paradigm really well, while sounding too technical or maybe not as expressive or something to, to the way that a lot of Eurorack modules are named, like the mutable instruments clouds, you know, braids, what is, what is braids really? Morphing terrarium. Yeah, morphing terrarium or <laughs> supercell. I mean, you know, yeah. um, I, supercell being a cloud thing, that one makes a lot of sense. The big cloud, yeah. So I, I don't want to go too deep on names, but I would like to know just a little bit about how you, how you came up with the names for these, these three modules. Yeah, well, I, I'll say that I really love the academic kind of detached clinical nature of the old vintage Google module names. It's one of the things that really attracts me to it because it seems like more of a blank slate. Whereas, you know, calling it um, something else that you might expect in Eurorack seems a little bit more marketing oriented, right? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really attracted to that kind of neutral agnostic. Well, here is, here's what it does. It's a source of uncertainty, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then uh, the irony is that those, those very clinical names end up becoming sort of mythological, right? Which is ironic. Yeah. It's kind of an inversion of what you might expect. Um, so I think just as with the, with the front panel layouts and so on, there's a lot of iteration that goes into the naming as well. You know, I'll have a file with that where I have, you know, maybe 10 or 20 names for certain modules and it's very hard to get it right. And I'm often referring to them by the acronym as well. So I want the acronym to be something that makes sense. Like, uh, you know, I posted, Kyle mentioned, I posted the marbles adaptation on modular grid. That's the stochastic voltage generator. Yeah. Um, um, so it's a good name. It's it tells good. you, it's, it tells you what it does. What is, what does marbles say? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe running out of nouns i don't know well, it's, um, it's funny too because the complex oscillator is uh you know we, we, we have lots of complex oscillators now and you're working on one and for vcv rack and the the complex waveform generator is where that nomenclature sort you know that sort of originated yeah with, with the modulation oscillator and a primary oscillator and complex waveform generator sounds so fancy but when you really break it down to what we're talking about, we're, we're trying to say something other than sine, triangle, square, and ramp, and saw. You know, it's a complex waveform isn't necessarily this super magical <laughs> wave. It's, right. it's something more than the base wave shapes. And right. I, I thought that was really kind of a, a, t a sort of a side testament to how these, the names of Buchla modules being so scientifically oriented they don't have the sort of the luster of, of a product name, but they still become kind of the lexicon as we you know, look at Eurorack and 5U modules now and going forward. Yeah, and I think too, if you look even a generation prior to Bukla, you'll see that a lot of the old test equipment did have those very, you know, an old HP signal generator. I think that's probably was his cue for naming the models like that because he was thinking of them not only as musical instruments, but as kind of technical devices that were exceedingly rare at that point. So that was probably a departure point for 
for Buchla's original naming schemas as well. I think source of uncertainty is the only non-technical Buchla module I could think of. Module name anyway. Well, it's, but it's it's not necessarily that they're technical, but that they're just very prosaic. <laughs> yeah, that's a good right. One. It's a quad function generator. It generates four different functions, and then you're like, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, now you have, you know, it's like we call it an envelope or a contour or just an ADSR or something, yeah. or the mutable ADSR. You know, it's called peaks, which makes sense. But uh, I like the clinical dryness of the of the names. That's something that attracted me to it, really. Yeah, it just becomes so much of a mouthful that we have to say two eighty one e two seventy two e. Well, the numbering system yeah. is very, you know, it takes you a couple of years, I think, to remember, like, what the, it's kind of like, you know, dope for what's the A141-2? Does that even exist? First of all, I, I probably just made it up. But that's a, that's a little bit too far into the esoteric. Like, I'm looking at a catalog of, like, resistor values, right? Um, mm -hmm. Also, I think you'll see with, the, with some of the third-party Buchla makers now, and even in, with Mark Verbos in the, in the over the past decade, you're going to run out of numbers eventually, right? Yeah. Just as the 200D runs out of preset slots once you hit a certain number <laughs> of modules, like you know, for uh, you know Roman to do uh, what's the toolbox, the 244? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just going to run out of numbers, and then you realize as you look back through the canon that the numbering system kind of makes sense, but doesn't really. Like mm -hmm. the, you have the 256, which is just a, a dual CV mixer. You know, the 257 is a dual CV mixer. And then you have an oscillator, 258, 259. I'll know you're out of space in the 50s, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you go back That's to like the, you have the 250, <laughs> the 251 are sequencers, the 245. And so, yeah, it, it probably started with the best of intentions, but you're going to run up numbers eventually. So I think having the names be clear but still somewhat evocative and not numerically linked it's probably a probably a good way to go uh, by the way i think there's a a Dieter's law that states if you <laughs> say the number the name of a depth for module that doesn't exist Dieter is suddenly working on that so if an a141 3 now he has to come out with that module. It might exist. Yeah, <laughs> he um, he has it all in a 1994 Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> where every number correlates to something. I'm sure it'll be very German. He, he'll never run out of numbers, though. Yeah, that spreadsheet takes uh, two days to scroll all the way through. <laughs> it takes two days to open. Yeah, <laughs> I remember even the MITM system used you know 100. 300, 400, 500, and so on. And I remember asking Paul, who I work with on the synthesis technology panel layouts and, and so on, like, why is there no 200? He's like, well, think about it. I was like, this was many years ago before I really dived into Buchla. I was like, why? Why is there no 200? He's like, because I was going to do Buchla modules. They're going to be in MOT format, but they were going to be the 281, the 292, and so on. He was never able to work anything out with, with Don Buchla to do that. So... There's still just that gap in the uh, in the lineup for both the Eurorack and the five U in the team. So, little gotcha. interesting story for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned uh, you have background in architecture too, and I was wondering how that maybe plays into your designs. Yeah, so I started out just doing digital media type stuff and. My my undergrad degree is actually in psychology, which is kind of the, really to me the foundation of the whole thing. Even though I never pursued it professionally, you know, 
why do people's minds work like they do? And then that extends to why does everything else work in the way it does? So studying architecture was that. It's like, you know, what is a building? Why is it put together this way? What does it mean? Can it be changed in certain ways that manipulate light, space, and so on for, you know, emotional reasons? You know, we derive meaning from our environment. So why do we do that? How does that work? So, yeah, I've, I've always had a little bit of a mechanical, you know, type of mindset for lining things up and so on. So it all comes from the same place for me, like whether I, you know, was an iPhone app that I designed you know, five years ago or doing a module or thinking about buildings. It's, it's all very much comes from the same place. Do you ever take some of the more, say, ethereal concepts of architecture, like Frank Lloyd Wright's bits about organic architecture, which can't literally do that in module design, but, you know, Buchla is kind of, if Buchla is the organism or the, or, uh, the environment in which one is building a Buchla module, does, do you ever think about how all that different stuff that influences the aesthetics of architecture and the way that we live inside those buildings, does that influence your module design and, and how, if it does? I might not understand the question exactly, but I think it's an interesting point to think about a modular system as sort of an environment. I don't even think that, that that's something I've considered. Um, and I think that goes back to working within a, existing aesthetic system as well as that you're kind of respecting the tradition rather than trying to show up with uh you know and say here i'm over here doing something really different <laughs> check it out <laughs> mm-hmm. so um so i'm not sure if i answered your question or not but. yeah i mean it's it's a long i mean not specifically anything about frank lloyd wright's organic architecture that that's a <laughs> perhaps a too complex of an example but the the concept of when you design a building you know, you're designing against within code and the permits and the time and the budget and materials and all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And oftentimes you'll see buildings that completely ignore where they are. And they're just these brutalist, which is actually kind of interesting design, but these, um, Mm -hmm. this just dropped in there to meet the needs of whatever the, whatever the uh, developer wanted. But an architect, a good architect, like when designing a home will, take into account the environment in which it's located and point the windows, shape them in the ways that will bring in the most light and, and aspects like that. And you, and you were, you were touching on that by, you know, if we're thinking of the modular as a, um, an environment in which we are placing these sort of use the metaphor, these buildings or these structures, the structures have a common aesthetic among them while being completely independent at the same time. And no, not that no two, necessarily work the same way but because we're within the same environment there's that familiarity as we move through them even when they come from different manufacturers so i was kind Mm -hmm. of tying together that in my mind anyway of how psychology and architecture maybe subconsciously influence your thinking about the ways you were designing these buchla modules within the buchla aesthetic as completely separate from the way you design grayscale modules in the euro rack aesthetic yeah right yeah like for, i like everything you just said actually that's really interesting. <laughs> well, i answered your question i think for um <laughs> well i think the the consistency is, is something that's similar between the two right like with grayscale even if it wasn't always 100 percent possible you could get your system to a certain degree you could create a, a neutral playing field for everything right um where there weren't a lot of different competing aesthetics 
Um, and so with Bukla, it's a little easier because there isn't you know, 200 plus people making Bukla models. So, uh, but I think the consistency is, is the motivation between the two of them, actually. And when you have, when you have consistency, you can focus on other things, right? You're not, your attention is not always being drawn by uh, the, the one model that's kind of screaming, you know, I'm the most important model in the case. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think you can also look at it as, I mean, we're all architects with our systems and putting all these things together. Um, and we all have our different layouts. Yeah. Some like a, you know, some like a Victorian where everything's very sectioned off and some want like, you know, big open modern spaces. So, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's vernacular, that. right. Like there's, people have different ways of building in different regions of the world and based on local materials and climate and things like that. So mm -hmm. yeah. What are the, what are the needs that drive the decisions, I guess? Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, you kind of mentioned too, like where um, you saw gaps in, in like the 200 series. Um, what, what else kind of, I, I mean, I think, um, I think the DOA is a great feel for that. Cause really there's <laughs> DAO. Oh, sorry, DAO, sorry. Dead on arrival. DAO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's not many oscillators when you think about it in the Buchla world. Um, yeah, and, and from an analog perspective, like, they're pretty much, you know, well covered. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not going to do much different than, you know, or much more complex than uh, 259, so... Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why bringing braids and, like I said, was kind of the first experiment. Like, you know, what if you had a digital, what if, you know, a, a wave table oscillator? So I guess the 2390 does that to a certain extent. But. Yeah. But, um, and I'm wondering kind of where else in the system do you think there's, there's gaps? A lot of it is uh, sort of the plumbing in between things. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think the 200 system as it stands, has a good canonical example of something that covers most uses, right? You have a very good random source. You have very good basic uh, function or envelope generators. You have very good oscillators. Um, the way that you have to work with all of it can be fairly prescribed because a lot of things are lacking, um, okay. such as, you know, we were talking about clock dividers. Um, and I know there's some third party clock divider, you know, the, based on the temp teal, for example, that's out there. Mm -hmm. And that's good, but, um, you know, could it be a little more performative than that? As if it were designed, to go back to the name, back in the 1970s, from the interface perspective, without a computer underneath it, or at least, at least without a screen that's telling you that there's a computer underneath there, can the interface be more analog, even if it's digital? So I think that's part of the motivation. So yeah, and don't want to give away too many plans, but I think the more you look at it, the more you work with it, the gaps start to become, at least to me, pretty obvious. Um, and I think each person might have different interpretations of what gaps are there. But uh, from my perspective, yeah, lots of things that connect everything together. Um, some new sound sources, obviously, um, and sequencing control, I think, are, are areas that are really have a lot to um 
a lot to explore. I think in terms of in terms of design overall, my interest really is in the control generation. I was talking to another manufacturer recently and was talking about how they've kind of refocused their line to focus mostly on uh, sound generators and processors because those are the things that everybody wants, especially when you're starting out. You know, a lot of people that have a Eurorack just have a 6U or 9U type system. So out of 200 and some manufacturers, if you want to get a model in that case, it's got to be fairly uh, fairly obvious, right? It's got to be a really, mm-hmm. really great oscillator or, you know, a nice filter or something. And then people get frustrated using modular systems and say they just can't get anything done with it. But it's because they focus on, like, you know, the biggest pieces of the building, to go back to the architecture metaphor, and forgot to put in all the plumbing. Um, yeah. And that's stairs. Or the, or the, yeah, the stairs and doors and the windows and everything. Kind of like how you were talking about Lionel Bachet having a, having a really large system. I think this is before we started recording the call, but, um, and how you can't really get to a certain level of sophistication unless the system grows to a certain level of complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it probably has a lot of redundancy too. In a, on purpose. Yeah. yeah. And I love having multiples of things, you know, another, that's another thing I liked about the vintage 200 series models, but there's lots of dual modules. Because if you know if having one is good, then what what about having two or four? It's probably even better, right? And then you can start to do things that aren't necessarily, you know, buccal bongo <laughs> type sounds uh, or so on. You start to realize that there's within the cold network feedback and complexity and so on. There's actually a whole lot more that you can do. And also, when you kind of mean control, do you actually mean like controllers or just uh, or CV? control process um i think i would use that term generally to mean anything that generates control voltages Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think the sound sources are there for the most part uh already quite good obviously i've augmented it with things like you know the rings and braids adaptations and i think probably the elements adaptation the metal synthesis voice is probably coming up very soon and those are interesting because the, that was stuff that you simply could not generate back in the 1970s digitally. You, you know, if you want to make those sounds, you're going to really have to set up a big network of metal pipes and, <laughs> and <laughs> strings and things. Um, so having it in DSP is a, is a bit of a shortcut. But uh, and I think those I think rings and elements specifically. You know, Robert had asked like, is there anything particularly Euclidean about the mutable stuff? And I don't necessarily think that there is. In some ways, it's kind of the anti-Bukla. But in terms of the timbre, that some of those things like elements generate do have a really organic quality that I think fits in really nicely with kind of the low-pass gates and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what... Because you have your own system, your own 200 uh, clone system. What do you like pairing your modules with that you've made in within your system? Well, unfortunately, I don't have very much time left, so actually... <laughs> <laughs> the irony, yeah, is that, it ends up that my musical output over the past couple of years has dropped precipitously. Um, so in terms of pairings, though, um, yeah, I think, you know, just doing something like using the clouds adaptation in Buchla is really interesting. You know, you like it feels like you're working with the 1970s Buchla, but this is granular synthesis, right, which probably was just a existed in the form of a few academic papers back in the 1970s. So mm-hmm. I like that kind of juxtaposition of like, this shouldn't be here, <laughs> but it is. The, like the prime 
pulse outputs from pendulum ratchet going into freeze with a slow clock. That could be that. Could, that just popped in my mind as an interesting application. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you have a PR because I sold it to you. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking, did you have another one? <laughs> no, no, I'm. You I was, can't get it back. I was vicariously living yeah. through you and, and the answer to that question. But yeah, right. That, that one popped in my mind because generating prime number pulses is really challenging. Yeah, and so that that's one where you you know you have kind of some random, some controlled randomness there on freeze that um, would be really interesting depending on the sound source. Yeah. Yeah. I really love the pendulum rash. Actually, if, if Chris is listening, I'd be glad to reissue that for you at some point. <laughs> One yeah. can dream. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. Yeah. That, that raises another point too, about doing adaptations in general and filling in gaps. It's kind of like, there are things that you kind of expect to be there, you know, if it aren't. Um, and there's some models and I think that in Eurorack people just find really indispensable, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, the Turing machine is one, yeah. you know, and I did, I did my Eurorack adaptation of the Turing machine, which is called permutation. And again, it was just kind of a problem solving exercise of like, and there's some, what would I add to the Turing machine if I, if I could, you know, and of course I do a layout that works and I'm like, I can actually really make this. So again, that kind of inductive reasoning leading to a, starting at the end and then working backwards. But um, that, that will be one of the upcoming releases too, is a Buchla format uh, version of a Turing machine and expanders. That would be, oh, neat. yeah, that would be really cool to play with. Um, I have a Turing machine. I actually have your, the grayscale panel Turing machine in my, oh, nice. my small Eurorack sidecar, as I call it. Yeah. And it's a really, that's a, with volts and it's a really fun, um, it's a really fun module. It'd be interesting to, you're going to have, if you have the expanders, it's going to be a lot of banana jacks. It'll be. Yeah. Very dense. Like the size definitely. of a Marf with all this. No, it'll be one new, but um, wow. definitely dense. And I'm even adding a couple of things to it from permutation. So can't wait to see that. Well, along the, <laughs> in regards to, so you, there, there are probably lots of Eurorack modules that you would like to have in Buchla format. Um, is if, if there were, if you could snap your fingers and have a 1979 module that, you know, based on any Euro rack module out there, what would it be? Hmm. Like no holds barred could be anything without giving away like what I'm already working on. Yeah. Leave those out. (laughs) (laughs) Might not have an answer then. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think obviously doing the mutable stuff was, probably covers a lot of ground, right? Those are easily some of the most beloved, popular sort of modules in the Eurorack. So mm-hmm. I, it, it would be hard to imagine in a way like using a Eurorack system that didn't have at least one or two mutable modules at this point, right? It, yeah. it, mutable became sort of an institution, like, you know, make noise or someone. Um, one that I would really like to have that actually isn't even out yet is the, is the Chaos Devices Odessa. It's an FPGA-based harmonic oscillator. And I have the Verbose harmonic oscillator, but um, the Odessa looks like it really adds a lot. And I kind of have, I have a lot of uh, admiration for the Chaos Devices guys, and we do, we, we do model trades and so on. So I know those guys, so who knows? I love their aesthetic. <laughs> I love the Chaos aesthetic. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Marston, you know, kind of like me, comes from a more of a design background than an engineering background, so... That's how you end up with things that are, you know, nicely designed. You have to, uh, you can't do the engineering first. I remember there's a, 
There's a great quote in an old keyboard magazine booklet interview from 1982 where he's talking about designing from the outside in, not from the inside out. You know, you don't start with the engineering. The engineering is really just the means to an end. And kind of like one of you guys said at the beginning of the, of the talk, uh, once you put it in, you don't even look at the circuit board, right? You don't even care. You don't know how it works, why it works. You just know that it works and that you can use that as a stepping stone to do something um, musically of your own invention. So, but yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of your rack stuff that would be interesting to have. I'm working on various things, but. I, I would like a more DAX data in Buchla format, which is oh, yeah. kind of, that, would be, that mm-hmm. would be really amazing, right? Cause then you have a clock generator, clock divider, really nice oscillator. You know, the, um, See, I love that module in your rack. Yeah, I love the Eurag version, and I, I traded with them as well for a, for a data traded a permutation. But um, that's one module that I, because of all the extra functionality, I would say that, that this is not Euclidean. No, it's not at all. But I would that's still like it. Sort of nineteen seventies interface design. Yeah, analog one to one. Now, if I if I pictured a Buchla format oscillator or a, sorry oscilloscope, um, it would be quite different yeah. from data. But it, that would be a really nice one to have, actually. It would be a great utility module. Just mm-hmm. the only difference between having it in Eurorack like I do now is the I wouldn't have to do you know banana to uh, 3.5 millimeter, and yeah. I would have 1.2 volt per octave. And but it's it's like a multifunction module that I use all the time for my five U and with my Buchla and, and um, kind of a it's kind of silly because there's nothing about it that would be special in Buchla necessarily. It's just something that I need all the time. So, Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't think you realize how useful it is until you get one. Kind of talking about filling in gaps in the canon, you know, you're like, I like that when you have a realization that there's something you missed that you didn't even know that you missed. And then you're like, oh, there was something invisible that was suddenly made visible <laughs> by getting this and realizing it. So, How many modules do you, if you can tell us, how many modules do you currently have <laughs> kind of on in your hopper to release and in a list that you hope to do so the hopper to release yeah well i'll say that my ability to come up with new ideas far outstrips <laughs> the ability to prototype and go through multiple iterations and so on um i think realistically right now there are about 10 models that are 95 percent finished wow ready to wow. go and of course it's a bit of a dilemma for me because that could be that could take two years to release, right? All of those. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll have to prioritize a little bit. Um, and I, I still feel like I haven't even gotten to the, to the point when I'm working on the ones that I really want to make yet. So there's a lot of ideas, yeah, dozens and dozens of ideas, but uh, it's a question of how to prioritize it and what really makes sense versus what, you know, might just be something that I really want to make that doesn't have general applicability. So that's a big part of the challenge. Yeah. How do you, do you have like a, a brain trust or people that you work with on that? Cause I've thought about that too, about different um, modules or tweaks to different things. That's so like, Oh, I could really use that and I'll kind of bounce it off somebody else. And they're like, why wow, I would never use that. And yeah. So, and so um, what's that kind of process like? Um, in terms of having a brain trust? No, not really. Um, it's pretty much that's pretty much a solo endeavor, yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea. So, so kind of just weighing like, well, what, what would other people <laughs> like? And yeah, and trying that. to guess like, yeah, what 
what would other people want? What's what's truly useful versus merely utilitarian? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think kind of as I mentioned um, short, a few minutes ago, like the sound sources and processors are I think the ones that people really want, even if they don't realize that they, what they really just need is another, you know, CD processor or something. You want to just load up on filters and oscillators. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, to a certain extent, doing releases based around that kind of idea are, would be a good thing. Um, Which you've done thus far. Yeah, th- that is kind of the pattern with those, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's. I would say as far as signal processing is, is on the lower end of, I guess, if you kind of look at all the modules that Don's done, um, you know, there's not that many filters or, mm-hmm. um, or you get the, you know, 297, which not many people have or really use for a dedicated like phaser. Phaser, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot you could do back then, you know, you could filter yeah. it. You could, yeah. And now, of course, there's a lot of options, maybe too many options. But even then, you like, you know, you have delay, flanger, reverb, you know, every multi-effects $200 rack mount unit has the same mm-hmm. stuff. It's not like you're going to get your mind blown by some completely new DSP algorithm. And yeah. I feel in a way that that's kind of where we are with modular gear, maybe with the music gear in general, we've the territory has largely been mapped, right? And mm-hmm. I think the, the 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 territory that's left to explore has to do with how do you control it all? How do you get it all to work together? Because it's been kind of running, you know, for so long looking at the most obvious large pieces of the system. And then the subtlety and the glue that puts it all together, I think is worthy of some consideration as well. I had one question about the uh, DAO. Got that right this time. Yeah. Um, was there any because I, like with the what you did with um, the SMP and kind of blowing it out, bringing all these other options? Um, uh, it's basically you know a braids, or you have all the same inputs and and pots um, that are on the original. Was there any idea of like blowing it out and bringing some other uh, functionality that could be more tactile, like? Um, I really found, really found it useful with the uh, with the internal envelope and VCA, and got me thinking like, oh, if you maybe put this into like a two panel wide system, you can maybe bring some of those functions and have kind of like an entire voice within or two voices within uh, in a two panel system. Yeah, right. Or do a single panel braids basically with everything broken out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of part of what those conversions is is not to kind of reinvent the wheel in terms of rewriting the firmware, you know, because then you're you're really starting over from scratch in terms of it could be anything. You've kind of wandered off into the wilderness of like super subjectivity, right? Like, what do I do? <laughs> I think having the limitation of working with the original is kind of a good starting point um, mm-hmm. because you know you could take all the voice algorithms from braids and then build something completely different around that, but that wasn't necessarily like the starting point for that module. So yeah, true. And in a way, the value proposition, the value proposition of Braids in a way was tons of models with the built-in envelope and the built-in VCA without being large. So, yeah. So I think if you make it big, you lose something uh, with that. Yeah, true. Well, it was just, 
amazing to chat with you, Wes. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me on and getting to talk about all this stuff that I work on every day. <laughs> it, it's very intuitive for me. So I don't when I have to explain my process, I think it actually is really useful because I have I can then understand something about it myself. So totally. And where uh, where's the best place for people to define your modules? So the website is 1979.ws, uh, just because they're like short domain names. And the .com was probably ordered uh, registered like 15 years ago or something. Um, <laughs> I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I haven't really started. I need to catch up on doing demos and all that stuff. Um, with those two recent weekly format releases, I just haven't had a chance to do demos and so on. So the website, Facebook, Instagram, there's a mailing list as well uh, linked on the website contact page that I'll probably be sending out an email to every time there's a new release or something major like that. Cool. Well, yeah, everybody should uh, should sign up. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again so much for uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. We'd like to thank Wes Milholland again for joining us on the podcast. That was so much fun. You can check out his current lineup of Buchla format modules at 1979.ws. Also, be sure to check out Kevin Ricks's Lollykins albums on Bandcamp at robotrixie.bandcamp.com. If you're in Seattle or planning a trip to Seattle in early October, you can get your tickets for Patchworks and Modular Seattle's Velocity Festival at velocityseattle.com. The festival is taking place on October 5th, and there's going to be some awesome workshops and presentations by some of our favorite synthesizer enthusiasts like Nathan Moody, Elson Wolf from Wave 4 Magazine, who just got an easel, by the way, and fellow podcasters Ben Divkid Wilson and Tim Held. And those two have had some great episodes recently. Tim's Podular Modcast had Sarah Bell Reed and the people behind the Quadraphonic Modular on the Spot event that you played at earlier this month, Kyle. Yeah, and Esoteric Modulation, Ben's podcast, had Robin Rimbaud, aka Scanner, on it a couple weeks ago. And most recently, he had everyone's favorite composer and YouTuber, Heinbach. Don't forget to visit waveformmagazine.com to get a free print magazine delivered in the mail. The next issue comes up very soon and has some bookless stuff in it. You can support the show through Patreon at patreon.com slash source of uncertainty. And find us on Instagram at source of uncertainty. We'll see you next month. Can't wait.